Well, uh, as you settle back in, I'm uh, going to go over a couple things. Uh, hey, how many of you here la- were here last week and heard Brian's excellent message on, on uh, uh, David and Goliath and that whole story? Brian, there's a big chunk out of the stage up here. I don't know what this is right here. Maybe you can explain that. Uh, he was excited. Yeah, he gets physically demonstrative when he's excited, doesn't he? Yeah. A um, couple things for you. Uh, those Maranatha meals. Uh, look, I want you to know that it is our heart. It is our, it is our absolute heart to see you connected uh, in this place in this year. Uh, not just at a, in a physical kind of way like, hey, I'm serving here or I'm, you know, I, I know these people, I have friends but that there would be something beyond that. There, there, it is entirely possible for somebody to be very active here in the life of our church, but yet feel very disconnected. Uh, it, it's, it sounds counterintuitive, but I know it to be true. I've heard this testimony from a number of people who are mature believers and people that I love and people who are, have a tendency towards intentionality. They're not you know, the type of people who are like, well, you know, I haven't tried anything. And so... Um, uh, you know, the solutions to these things sometimes are not just programs or, uh, uh, you know, more things to do, but there, there's a deeper level of, of, like, you know, warfare where we say, Lord, we want to go beyond the surface and see you move uh, in, in deep, deep ways. And I think that, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things I think is a starting place for that are these Maranatha meals, getting outside of, you know, I just think something, I have this deep, deep bias and deep belief uh, that I see this over and over again in the life of Christ, that there's something that happens around a table. <laughs> there's just something that happens at meals. There's a, there's a vulnerability. There's an openness. Um, Jesus seems to use this pattern over and over again. He was accused of, 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 of violating you know, you know, laws about who you could hang out with because he was so willing to hang out with people who were, who were, who were disreputable or, or who were cast outside the camp just to share a meal. And uh, I'm not saying that you're all disreputable and cast outside the camp, but we're not all that wonderful either. You know, there's something beautiful that can happen in these times. And, and, and whether it's a Maranatha meal or, or just opening your home, I'm telling you that our hospitality is a, is a, is a massive and primary weapon of warfare. When we open our homes and we, and we invite people in, whether they're brothers and sisters or people who don't know the Lord, it's a massive way in which we confront powers and principalities. We establish something uh, in terms of our willingness to be open and vulnerable with those who need to know the Lord. And so I just want to really exhort you to find one of those homes that's nearest to you and, or maybe find several. There's no reason you couldn't go to several of those, those places and say, Lord, I'm longing and looking for a place where I can connect in a deep way. And so that's that. That's my mini message on Maranatha Meals. Also, uh, another way that you can connect... Um, I have two different, this is one of those like talking out of both sides of your mouth. I, I for a long while have been bothered by the fact that it feels like men are, are, are just kind of noticeably absent in churches in terms of connecting their hearts and also serving. At the same time, I believe that one of the primary ways God's going to invade the earth with his glory under, the, under his return is going to be through women. Amen. I see this happening in the global south and, you know, places that, 
you know, where there's massive persecution that the primary leaders in the church are women. And I, I don't think that's by accident. I think that's just, actually, I think that this has always been the case, but, but women have never controlled the narrative. You know, that you look at who, you look at who was the first to, to, to visit the empty tomb, you know, the first witnesses. There's, there's, I think, always been women who have led the way in terms of being, you know, the banner carriers uh, for the Lord, and I, but I think it's a primary strategy. But men, I don't think that means that we're supposed to take a back seat. And I've, one of the ways that men, you can get yourself deeply connected in this place, and in this church, is there's a men's group that meets on Monday nights. They meet right here, I, th- I believe right here in the, in, back in the kind of cafe area, 630, one side or the other, Byron. I don't know where you go, over this side. And they're, they're finishing up the study on the Sermon on the Mount, and then they're going to move you know, somewhere else. But it's a group of guys that um, they're pretty serious about getting into the Word, also connecting their lives together. And so if you've never come to that, and you're a guy, and you're like, you know, I, I need to get with a group of guys and get that kind of that side of my heart unlocked, um, then come. We'd love to have you, have you join. All right, uh, open your Bibles. Are you guys ready? Get into the Word a little bit. All right, uh, we're going to get into uh, Acts chapter 4. I'm, really, verse 12 is I'm going to read one verse, and I'm going to pray, and then I'll have some context to get into to help you understand where we're going with this. But really, it's a, it's a, it's a central verse that the, I'll tell you the conclusion of the point of this verse before I even tell you the verse or read the verse together. The conclusion is it's all about Jesus. It's really, if you boil it all down, it's all about Jesus. And we've been sorting through, I've been sorting through anyway in my own heart and in messaging uh, some of the significance of this, this, this name that we have now, Maranatha, and uh, the, the fact that it is, it is so well-rounded, it's such a beautiful word, I, you know, recently I had an opportunity to explain the word to a, uh, to a friend who uh, is an old neighbor and who has kind of ebbed and flowed in his life in God, and he's far from God, and as he, was, he told me, this is a really weird name, and why would you name the church that? And I explained the name, and I explained it a couple of times, and when I looked up the second time, he was weeping, and he said, this is such a beautiful name, and he said, I'm so far from God. And we prayed. And, and so I've seen I, there's something deeply beautiful about this name. But to me, the core of this name is that it's Christological. It points to Jesus. You cannot explain this name without pointing to him. And so it's what I love about this particular passage is it points to Jesus. So Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. Peter is referring here to Jesus. Salvation is found in no one other than Jesus, for there is no other name except the name of Jesus under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so, Lord, we ask that you would amplify, that you would, that you would amplify the name, that you would clarify, that you would bring into to clear focus You would manifest, make clear, make real your name, make your name known in this congregation here this morning, Lord. I make no assumptions about any of us, about where we are and how we relate to your name. Except this, Lord, I believe that there is no other name. It's all about you. There is no other name given by which men must be saved. So we thank you, Father, for the uniqueness, 
We thank you, Father, for the exclusivity of the name, that it is an inclusive name and that it invites all to come, but that it's an exclusive name, that there is no other name. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to reconcile that even in this in, this, in the context of this, of this passage that we're, we're about to dive into. And so, Lord, speak that word into my heart. Remind me of who I am in you, Lord, that my identity, that, my, that all things about who I am would be made secure in you and that I would bow low at your feet and stand tall everywhere else. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little context uh, to, this, to this single, simple little verse that Peter uh, offers in Acts chapter 4. It's, it's actually part of a passage uh, where the, the central point that, that Luke is opening up for us in about two chapters of Scripture, if you, if you sort through it, is the significance of the name of Jesus. I think one of the key things that he's exploding in, in, in a beautiful line of, of uh, narrative is how does Jesus do business now that he's ascended into heaven? And Jesus had walked amongst the, uh, his people. He'd been crucified, resurrected, hung out with them as a resurrected, you know, in his resurrected body, a very different thing than they'd ever seen. And I think that the assumption amongst those who are with him is, okay, this is really going to be cool now. Like now he's, he's resurrected. Now he can do stuff that he could only reference before. Now he's, he's, he's fully alive, never to die again. Now he's, he bears the wounds but can't be, can't be wounded now. So what's, watch what he does. And then next thing you know, he's ascending into heaven. And they're like, oh, now what? And so Peter you know, all of a sudden, Peter, who was half converted until Jesus restores him on the Sea of Galilee, and then his, he's, fully, he's fully invested, then Peter preaches his first message, and 3,000 get saved. 3,000 hear this name, this exclusive name, and come into relationship with him, and you're like, man, okay, something's happening. I mean, the Pentecost has come. The, the, the power, the breath of God has, has, has been, you know, breathed life into these, this dust bowl of people called the church, you know, formed by dust, but almost lifeless in a sense. And then the spirit, he says, wait, tarry until the spirit comes. They wait, the spirit comes. They're now alive. They, they are so alive. They appear drunk and, and, and people get saved and you're like, okay, something's happening. But then you go, you know, that was a cool day. That was a cool event. The church can become very event focused. We can have, you know, we could, we could have a big event out here and get thousands of people out here and go, man, wasn't that cool? And then go, but what, what about the next day? What does an everyday look like? And, and I love the fact that Luke just explodes open. He, he, he goes in deep, bores in deep into the trenches to say, well, let's just look at what a day looks like in the life of those who love Jesus and follow him. So in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John... They, they, they follow their pattern. They go to the temple uh, for, t- for prayer, which they would, was, would be their pattern you know, every day. And they make their way up into the, uh, the, the temple area through the, the eastern side of the temple in through the gate that is closed off now. I think it's a, it's, uh, and there's a big story about all that. I believe it's a gate, you know, the gate that Jesus will uh, explode through when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. Then we say Maranatha, that's where he's, 
I believe he's going to come ultimately. But it's in this gate they enter, and inside this gate they find this, this uh, lame, crippled uh, beggar who's been that way for a long, long time, and he asks them for money. Anybody ever had this experience? Maybe not the beautiful gate, maybe just the gate station. You know, you've been, you, you, you've been, uh, anybody ever been asked? Ever, anybody ever been approached? Yeah. Um, and so these guys probably feel the awkwardness of the situation, much like, you know, you and I do. Uh, they're not sure exactly, I mean, they don't really have anything. Uh, they're probably unlike you and I in that regard. You know, we could probably afford to give a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars and it wouldn't really dent our lifestyle at all for them. They didn't really have anything to give, so they gave what they had. And so they say to this guy, silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And, and this is the first time in this, this section, these couple of chapters, that Peter opens up this, this, this concept of the name meaning so much. And, and there are eight separate occasions between uh, this this line here, this, this encounter with the, this beggar, and toward the end of Acts chapter 4, that Luke returns to this concept over and over again. And so they, they speak in the name of Jesus, the man's, the man's healed, and then all of a sudden he's, because, you know, when you've experienced something like that, you're like, hey, I'll hang out with you guys. And so they can't shake him. You know, he's with them, and he's testifying what's happened to him, and they head into the temple, and it begins to attract a crowd. And all of a sudden a group of people... Uh, who are curious to know, uh, you know, what's, what's happened, they, they gather around Peter and John, and Peter says, I, I don't know, all of a sudden I think Peter has an awareness that, look, uh, I didn't really have anything to give, but I gave you what I had, and it had an effect. I think the only thing of value that I have to give away is this Jesus who I've come to know and love so deeply, and so he says the same thing to the crowd, essentially in different words. I don't really have much to give you, but, I, but, but we are, let me tell you what I've been a witness to. By faith in the, and then here's the second time in verse 16, the name of Jesus. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see now standing before you has been made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. And so... Um, he, he then goes on to explain to this group of people that essentially uh, he, he basically explains the life of Jesus. You know, you, you, you acted in ignorance. I get it. You didn't know who he was. Um, and and he, was, he was prophesied from the time of Samuel on, um, foretold these days would come, and yet he, he came and he was crucified and he was... Uh, but he's back, and it, it just kind of leaves everybody in a bit of an uproar, and so the priests, the, the, the people who are the religious rulers of the day say, look, we're going to bring you in for questioning. Essentially, they go before the Supreme Court you know, of Israel for questioning, and when they seize Peter and John, uh, they put him in jail until the next day, and so they're held, you know, and then they go before this, and it... <laughs> But the extraordinary thing to me is, if you go read this story, they seize them. They say, hey, look, you, you know, we got we to gotta put a stop to this at least till we can figure out what's going on. And when they seize them and put them in jail, 2,000 more people get saved. 
How about that for a church growth strategy? In, in the rest of the world, this is the way the church is growing. In America, we're looking for better you know, slogans. But they, they, they go to jail. The next day, um, the, the, they go before the Supreme Court, and they're asked this question. By what power or by what name did you do this? So and, and what's, what's the root of the question? What are they asking? What authority do you have? What, what right do you have to do this thing that you did? They don't even really ask, <laughs> they don't even really ask him, how did you do it? Or is it real? Because they got a formerly lame beggar who'd been lame a long time standing before them. So it's kind of hard to refute the, the reality of what's going on. So they don't bother asking, you know, is this real or how did you do it? They just say, by what authority did you do it? And, and Peter's answer, again, Peter who is so, I think sometimes so trips over his words, now has the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and I think he's still just as edgy, but he's so on point. He says, oh, if you want to know, like, on how we're going to account for the fact that we reached out to a, in kindness to a man who was lame and was really a burden to Israel and did something about it so that he could be a contributing member of community, you know, and do something that all of you never really even looked at and saw him, Here's, what we, here's how we did it. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, <laughs> but God raised from the dead, that's how we did it. Because, and then there's our key verse, salvation is found, wholeness, healing, you know, uh, deliverance from an eternal separation from God, everything that's wrapped up in this word is found in no other name. There's no other name given other than the name of Jesus. And so uh, they're kind of confounded by this. They, they, they take note of the fact that it says that they're astonished that these unschooled and ordinary, these fishermen from the Galilee, these guys who they, they have no rabbinical training. They don't, they're not lawyers. They can't, you know, but they're, they're confounded by the wisdom. That, and they, and <laughs> it just says this. It says they take note that they've been with Jesus. Maybe I'll open that up in a, in a, in a couple minutes, but um, I, I just hope someday somebody says that about me. Yes. You know? You can boil my life down to a lot of things. I, if someday I have the, 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 the privilege to stand before people who would accuse me of doing something significant in the name of Jesus, if they would just take note of the fact that, that I had been with Jesus that I represent the, the, the character, the nature, the image of Christ somehow in a way that becomes accusational. What, a, what, a, what an honor. And so, um, so they, they, they confer together, and then they say, okay, here's the deal. We can't really refute anything you did, but, but here's the thing. You can't do anything more in his name. So here, again, eight times in this, we have, we have the issue of the name that's brought up. And, and it says, uh, they called them in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. In other words, 
we're going to have to determine for ourselves whether we're going to be obedient to this, 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 this guy who's alive and seems to have, he has power over death or you. Have you ever, have you ever evaluated that in your life? Like, you know, I mean, because let's be honest. There, there's massive fear of rejection if we were to be bold, bold witnesses for Jesus. If you were just to go be out there everywhere you went with the power and the authority of Jesus and what he's done in your life, if you were to share that, you know, inside your sphere of influence on a daily basis, your workplace or at the grocery store or in your family or in your neighborhood, I mean, it, it, don't, don't we kind of sometimes feel like, man, I just don't want to be like Jesus freaks, you know, I don't want to be like, and, and it's not like we don't want to be like people who are on fire, it's just that I think our concern is what if people kind of reject us for it? And, and Peter and John basically say, look, you're going to have to judge for yourselves, but for us, if we're going to be, if we're going to be rejected by God or rejected by you, we'll take your rejection every day. We're going to be obedient to, to all that we know that, that the Lord's uh, laid before us. And so they release them, and when they release them, they gather together with their, their, their community, their fellowship, and they, in, in verse 29, the very end of, basically the very end of, of chapter 4, this is what they, they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats, the, the religiously, the Supreme Court, and enable your servants, us, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. Has, have they seen this happen? You know, the, and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your high holy servant, Jesus. The conclusion of this, for me, if you read through this beautiful little story, is, is that, that Luke is trying to make very clear to us that the name of Jesus, when properly accessed and used, is no different than the presence of Jesus. Things happen the same for those who have right access and authority to his name as what happens when Jesus is on the scene. In other words, it doesn't really look any different. Like if Jesus were inserted into this story, and it wasn't just his name, but his presence, it would look the same. Jesus walks into the, into the beautiful gate, arise and walk. Jesus is brought before the authorities and asked on what authority. You know, and, and it, it's, it, it just doesn't look any different. And this ought to be something you go, hmm, if this was true for them, what about us? The conclusion that I come to is it's all about Jesus. There is no other name. And my faith, the, the, the faith that I hold on to, that I grapple with even on a daily basis. I was joking with Yolanda before the service. I was saying, I was kneeling down and saying, Lord, fill me right now. I, you know, the anointing, I said, just in time. Bring the anointing just in time. You know, is not really a joke that we, I'm a living sacrifice. And daily I come before the Lord and I say, you know, I grapple with this because I don't want to just follow clever teachings. It's the person of Jesus. It is, I, I believe he's real. Yes. He's, a, he's, he's, he's alive. He is attentive. He cares and he's coming. <clears throat> this Jesus is the way Peter said it, alive, available, at work now, healing sick people, redeeming from fear people like you and me who deny him. Because we're afraid, and then we learn to preach him like Peter because we're not afraid. Jesus, this Jesus, is the most alive man. He's the most alive issue in the world, and he's the only hope that I can think of, the only name by which there's hope for, for humanity. 
And it's breathtaking. It's life-changing. It's, it's, it's power. And it is this Jesus, not that Jesus. He's present. The, 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 the Maranatha cry in my mind means we're not looking back on, remember that, that Jesus who did those things. He's this Jesus. He is here and now. The Holy Spirit wasn't given to the church to compensate for the absence of Jesus, but to guarantee his presence. It, to incarnate the church with the presence of God in the same way that, that Jesus is the word made flesh. Now, I've been reading a biography written by a mentor of mine about one of my favorite uh, figures in Christian history. So it's a cool thing. A guy that I know was tasked to write a book about someone who's like a hero to me. And, and the guy who, who the book is about, a guy named E. Stanley Jones, who was tapped as the greatest missionary of the 20th century. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, you know, um, he's a good one. And in this book, I was taken by this phrase that as Jones is making it clear that really it's the person of Jesus that, is, that has captured his heart and captured his ministry, that, that there was this phrase that he used, he talked about how people would object to him or object to Jesus and object to his message under the realm of three objections. Basically this, it isn't new, it isn't you, and it isn't true. Like this, this, this message of Jesus isn't new message. It isn't you, I don't see it in you, and it isn't true. And I just want to kind of break this down really quickly under those three banners. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. And so, here's the idea of it isn't new. Some people object uh, to the gospel in this way, to, to the good news, this, this robust, fantastic news that Jesus is alive and he's conquered death. They basically will say that there's really nothing new about the New Testament. And it's interesting it's an interesting thing to respond to because if you look at it in the context of this story, honestly, for the Jew, this is true. There really, it isn't anything new, really, for the Jew. This is a, this is a thought, you know, this messianic fervor is not new, it's old. And Peter makes this point in, in, in verses 17 um, of, to the end of, of chapter 3 where he's saying, look, I know that you acted in ignorance, but this is... This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. He's saying, you know, this isn't new to you guys. But for the Gentile, this is mind-blowing news. It doesn't always hit your heart that way, does it? Because for those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, and particularly those of us who were raised in, in, in the church, it's just, it can be kind of, kind of boring. And this is the thing that's really struck me of late is how privileged we are to have grown up in a place where there is no price to be paid for our faith in Jesus, that it, it can just become kind of mundane and boring to us. And kind of, you know, I, I think of this all the time. I'm, Carol and I are teaching a class, an online class, and a lot of people in that class are in other places in the world. They're not like where we live in the, in the, in the Bible Belt. And what I come to realize in the Bible Belt is everybody identifies as a Christian because, well, if they're not a, they go, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim and I'm not an atheist so I must be a Christian and they've grown up around the church and they've grown up with this kind of knowledge of the church they know the words they know the they know how to talk the talk but it's just kind of sort of appropriated in some place of like almost being boring but, for the, but if you think about this this is a mind-blowing concept 
And uh, I, I kind of heard this preached a bit last week. I was in a place last week. It's at a board meeting out in Wyoming. Beautiful, beautiful place at a sanctuary. I always thought our windows in the back were, I mean, man, we have this beautiful setting. Well, they're, they're, they have these massive windows, and the setting behind it is the, Grand, is the Tetons. And I was like, I had a little bit of sanctuary envy. Uh, but there was a, a, a pastor that was there that was, that was preaching, and he was talking uh, coincidentally about the story of David and Goliath. And, um, and a point that he made in it I thought was really fantastic. It just really, really hit me. That, that, that goes to the point of, of, of how revolutionary and mind-blowing this, 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 this thing God did with Jesus and he was saying it this way. If you, uh, we'd have to unpack this over another another time. But if you look at Goliath, I could show you. And I think it's actually real and 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 pretty. Whoa! Is that within the name of, within Goliath and the description of Goliath, you can see a pattern, a very easy pattern that comes out where there are basically three sixes, like six six six. And I'm not saying that Goliath is the antichrist, but he's definitely anti-Christian. He's anti-God, right? He's, he's come to war against the people of God. And what does Goliath say? He says, hey, choose one man. Choose one man to come out here and fight me. And if that one man, if, if, if he beats me, we submit to you. If I beat him, you submit to us. Right? You guys know the story? Brian talked about that a little bit last week. Okay, you with me? Not ahead. Say something. Hallelujah. All right, I'm with you now. So, all right, so you know this story. And so, so this is Goliath's challenge. And imagine, though, if you will, that in some, if, if Goliath represents something more than himself, and I'm sorry to Malcolm Gladwell, who tries to just, if you read his thing about David and Goliath, he just kind of makes Goliath, he infers that he, maybe he's just a sad, melancholy figure. And, but I think he's, I think the scriptures are, the clearest reading of the scriptures is he's obviously warring against the people of God. And so imagine, if you will, not Goliath, but Satan standing before God saying those same words. Choose one man to come and war against me. If I beat him, I get all your people. You beat me, he beats me, I submit. God says, okay, <laughs> I choose Jesus. Satan says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. That's not fair. He's not a man. God says, okay, I'll make him a man. I want you to think about how mind-blowing this is, how, how, how much this moves away from any story that's been known. There are stories in other traditions within the Canaanite religions and within uh, the, 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 the religions of the world that exist today where there, are, there is something like demigod-like where God will put something of who he is, or God will consort with humanity and, and, and have a half-God kind of person. The Greeks believed in these sorts of things. But look at the story that God gives us of who Jesus is. There's this decisive difference between Christianity and every other religion. The difference between the word becoming word and the word becoming flesh is that God, fully God, becomes fully man. And Jesus didn't just bring good news. He, he is good news. He is the good news. He, the gospel lies within his person. The difference is profound in this. And, you know, a religion or a, or a system that's based on moralism, the idea of 
understanding right from wrong, even the law as it's brought, you know, it, it, it points to the way, but Jesus is the way. A, a philosophy, you know, some sort of philosophy of understanding life points to truth, but Jesus is truth. You know, and, and, and even religion itself can point to life, but Jesus is life. Jesus points to himself as the word became flesh. And when I think of goodness, when I think of virtue, I think of Jesus. When I think of God, I think of Jesus. When I, uh, I, I remember a story so vividly of a, of a man who was dying when I was a chaplain with hospice. And this man, um, it's, a, it's a long, beautiful story, but the, the short of it is this, that this guy called me in his room and he said, I know I'm near death and I'm really afraid to meet God. And I said, why are you afraid to meet God? Is it because of your life? And he said, well, that's in part because of my life, which is easy enough to deal with. We can deal with repentance right here and right now. And he said, but I'm more afraid because, of my, because, of, because I'm afraid to meet God the Father. I wish I could know that I would meet Jesus the Son, but I'm afraid I'm going to meet God the Father. See, what he had done is he'd separated the, 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 the God that he understood this wrathful God who, look, he's, he'd read enough scripture to read passages. He had passages to go, what about this? What about that? Yes, that's true. That's also true. But he'd separated this into some sort of separation where he saw, he saw God as being mostly mad at him and Jesus being mostly a good guy. And he said, look, if I get to choose in this, I just hope I get to meet Jesus. So we had an opportunity to talk about reconciling those, that, that theology, that, that, that it's really, it's an age-old heresy of separating uh, Jesus the Son in the New Testament from God the, 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 the judge uh, of the Old Testament. I won't go into how he did that, but let me tell you, it's good news. And it's not just good, it's news. It's new, it's news. You know, news is supposed to be something new that you learn, and it is new. This is New, this thing of God becoming flesh in Jesus is still hits our heart today as being new. Every day. Say it again, whoever said that. Every day. Every, day. every minute. Every second. Come on. Amen. It's news and it's good. And it ought to hit your heart that way. The second part, though, is it isn't you. It isn't news. It isn't you. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm wagging my finger at us, you know, Bible Belt believers raised in Christians' homes who aren't, we aren't always the best representatives of who he is. Oftentimes, like I said, we're bored. We're just kind of bored with what it is. And, and, and it's quite obvious. Wouldn't you agree it's quite obvious that many Christians aren't living the life they profess? Aren't, wouldn't you also agree with me that you usually mean that's somebody else other than yourself? Yes. Wouldn't you also agree with me that if the, if, the, if the lens were turned in on you, that it might not be so nice? <laughs> like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, always, always finding fault in others? And it, 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 you know, missing the point, though, that their faith fell short? And so, I, I had a dream about a week ago. I, I'm not really ready. I know I'm not ready to process it publicly with you because it's, it's, it's way too deep and, it, it, and it's, it was way too sobering. 
And it wasn't a nightmare. It was, although it was very, very unsettling, it wasn't a nightmare. I know that because it, I didn't wake up in, under condemnation. I wake up, woke up with conviction and great hope and a, and a, and a great stirring in my heart to go, what, how, how then must I live? And it was like a 2.30 in the morning thing and then you know, up the rest of the night praying and processing. And, 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 but the, the, <laughs> the core of the message was this, that I had to reconcile through a confession that was very, very difficult but very, very raw and real and massive what it meant for me to live a life before God that was almost great. That God had laid this this plumb line of my life to my life that essentially said, run the race with perseverance marked out for you. And for God, it was just, that wasn't, it just, this was just the normal expectation of what my life would look like if I just lived a life for him. And I was having to reconcile in front, I w- it was almost like community service where you had to kind of like, I had to get up and be honest in front of a whole massive group of people. And it's, there's way, way more to this dream that I had not essentially lived the life that God had laid before me. You ever have a dream like that? I wake you up. When I was out in Wyoming, one of the guys that I was with, the board member, we were in a, going into the, 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 the ski village for dinner, this massive place with all these beautiful people. I mean, everywhere, just everywhere. There's a big, big concert that night and all these extraordinary, beautiful people I mean, it's, they, they say that area, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the billionaires drove out the millionaires. And so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty, wow, eye-opening. And, and this guy makes this comment. We're in an SUV full of people. He makes a comment from the back. He's like, wow, look at all these beautiful people with their beautiful lives. They're like, they have it all together. He goes, I just wonder if inside it, it, it matches what's on the outside. got really quiet and I think I said maybe somebody else said wow Eddie thanks a lot for bringing conviction to the SUV because we all knew that even though he was talking about them that we all felt it as though it hit our hearts like it was us and have you ever stopped and considered the delta the difference between the exterior life that you put out and the inner life that you hold on to Maybe. Love it. That biography I'm reading, E. Stanley Jones talks about meeting a theologian who was what would be described as a liberal theologian. If you hear that word liberal theology, don't freak out and think because if you vote Democrat that somehow this is an indictment. It's not the same thing. Liberal theology is, 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 uh, is its own thing. And this theologian said to, to Jones, he said this, we know so little about Jesus that we, there's, no, there's so little that we know about him and we can know about him that I could dismiss him cavalierly. The theologian says this and Jones said, well, then I can dismiss you cavalierly. Because as a witness who does in reality know little or nothing about Jesus, I can dismiss you because some of us know a lot about him. And moreover, we... We, we know him so well that we're in complete allegiance. Jesus has us. He has me. He has me fully, and that's producing in me this deep satisfaction that I, I couldn't know elsewhere. I want to spend my life 
I want to expend my life on fire for the Lord, for those who don't know him, that they'll just come watch. Come watch me burn. And I want a fellowship in the spirit with people who are burning as well, on fire believers, that it might set something ablaze that our whole community could see. It isn't new. It isn't you. And the final thing is it isn't true. My, my, my invitation, and, and this is, I think, significant. I make no assumptions ever about the people who come into our church on a Sunday morning. I don't know nearly enough your hearts to know how to answer this. But here's my invitation to anybody who feels like, well, you know what? It's kind of cool, but at the end of the day, I don't know if it's really all true. My, my invitation to you, if you feel it even remotely, is just try it. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. Jesus said that he was Savior and that when people would accept him as Savior, that they would find themselves saved this is the point of Acts 4.12. There is no other name by which salvation comes. And even for those who accepted him right there in the midst, they didn't even experience that as salvation from hell so much as, as, as from what they had been to what they could be under him and ought to be and freedom and saved from guilt and frustration and emptiness now, here and now. And one of those, East Stanley Jones would have these roundtable meetings with people who... He just invited anybody. And at one of the meetings, it was being chaired by a guy, led by a guy who wasn't a Christian. The guy said at the meeting, he said, look, if this stuff isn't true, it doesn't matter. But if it is true, nothing else matters. This is the weight. This is the weight of of decision you have to hold on to. If If it's not true, then go live your life. But if it is true, nothing else matters. And I would gracefully challenge anyone, anywhere, to expose your inner life to Jesus in repentance and in faith and obedience. And I can virtually guarantee the outcome. If you would legitimately lay your life bare before him and say, Lord, come on in. And in repentance and in faith and in obedience, I give that life to you. I can guarantee the outcome. You are inevitably changed by that. You're profoundly changed at the deepest core and every fiber of who you are in both objective and subjective ways, you're changed. And I've seen this over and over again in people's lives. I've seen it in my own life, and it's true. And so maybe you're a lot like that lame beggar at the beginning of the story. You're stuck. And if you are, then it's time to try something new. don't really have anything to give you other than this. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you can. I like altar calls. I like them because they force us to move. If you're a lame